I will, because I see an army of countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do without freedom? Will you fight? I fight, and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. In dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days of this day for that day, for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell your enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you. This is the Apostle Paul here writing to believers. And he's speaking to his troops who were about to go into battle. So why do I say that? Okay, This word beseech Okay, in verse 1. The classical Greek of this word is meant to be exhorting troops specifically who were about to go into battle. This is God's word to believers, to his kids. Guys, in this life we are in a battle, and we need to realize what is going on. Beseech is a very strong word in the Greek, urging us here. It's meant more than an idea, but this is essential for you and I, brother and sister, to get. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, so this is for believers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So far, Romans has been great. I think we can look thus far as, you know, we take a look at the whole of the book is kind of of a crossword puzzle, okay? Chapters 1 through 11 would be vertical. Our relationship to God, us and God. Now, from chapters 12 to 16, we get horizontal. <laughs> as a result of our relationship to God, now How does that work out? What does that mean? And that's what these chapters are going to show you and I. We get to fill in the blanks of our practical outworking of our faith. How we see God. How he sees. Okay? And how to love as we see his heart. How to speak as he would speak. How to serve as he would serve to be his hands to be his feet catch this this morning what we believe must guys determine how we behave do christians always behave like christians they say they're a believer they sure don't act like one don't we say that a lot Guys, we must allow what we believe to determine how we behave. Let's talk about the quality of life together. It's often discussed when someone has a terminal disease and they're about to die, right? Weighing out, hey, 
medical options, what to do, right? Quality of life in these last days. But I think it needs to be discussed, guys, in the spiritual realm. Amen? Quality of life for us as believers, spiritually speaking. Paul will now show quality of life should really characterize for those who believe in the gospel, as we set out on our last study in chapter 11, really what you believe must determine how you behave. So here's really where the religious rubber meets a rough road. Okay, you guys ever feel like you're not getting traction? <laughs> it's the same thing over and over and over and over. I'm spinning my wheels. Why ain't I going anywhere? Hey, we need to hit the road. Okay, there needs to be some forward movement, and that's what I feel chapter 12 is for us as believers. Well, wait, <laughs> what happens when the rubber really does meet the road? Well, there's going to be traction. We're going to see forward movement, and we're not going to be spinning our wheels anymore. I'm sick of us as the church spinning our wheels, doing the same old thing. Why aren't thing, more things happening? Because I think we're caught just in a vicious cycle. Okay, we're always about, hey, look at this new thing. Oh, guess what? There's going to be another new thing. Yeah, there's evil, guys, and there's going to be more evil and more evil. We live in a fallen world. Why let that keep spinning our wheels? <laughs> Let's go forward with what God lays out for us as Christians and how we ought to live and behave in light of that. So we're going to talk a lot here in the rest of this overview as we study through verse by verse the rest of Romans. It's really about relationships. I want us to have that in mind as we look here this morning in the rest of this book. It is all about our relationships. Today we're going to deal with our relationship with the Lord, which we see here in the first two verses. Then our relationship with ourselves in verse 3. Verses 4 to 16 talks about what we do as believers, our relationship with the church. And then the rest of the chapter, 17 to 21, deals here with how we relate or have relationship with our enemies. So, pretty cool outline for you and I this morning. So let's take a look um, here at three verses. The first uh, three verses here, Paul really has a triple heart check with us, okay? Um, you guys know that chapter 13, we're also going to look at relationships with uh, the government. I know a lot of you guys have had questions. I've heard some horrible teachings on chapter 13 in the last couple years. You guys need to be here in a few weeks for that. And then we're going to chapters 14, 15, and 16. Really, how do we deal with our enemies? Good stuff. Um, but here, there's a triple heart check that Paul gives to us. The first one, and I really want you guys to engage this morning because it's easy to sit and hear the word of God. <laughs> But are we really hearing? Are we really listening? Are we getting it? Okay, it's not for the person you're sitting next to or the person who wouldn't come to church with you today. This is for us, okay? Are we getting this? And the questions that really come up is, is your life consecrated? Is it set apart to God? Truly. Second question would have to be, is uh, our lives, are we allowing God to transform us? Are you allowing him to really change you, to transform you? And are you evaluating yourself accurately to know how best to serve others? Those are the three things that we see in the first three verses here. Take a look with me. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Okay? Now again, guys, in the context here, we're seeing that God has given to us a measure of faith when it comes to our different giftings within the body of Christ. Paul was an apostle. He had a special calling. And he stepped out in that calling according to faith. So here, this isn't faith about salvation. Okay? This is a faith according to the gifts that he's given to us. And you guys know that if you're in Christ Jesus, God has given you a gift, if not more. And in faith, guys, God will give us faith to step out and to use that gift. Okay? I get to teach this morning. I'll be very honest with you. I counseled with a pastor earlier this, or earlier, earlier this week. He's struggling, depressed, just going through it. He's a younger pastor. He's only been doing it for a couple of years. But it's one of those things he talks about how nervous he is to get up and teach the word of God. I'm like, bro, I've been teaching for 20 years. Thousands of sermons. I still get nervous. I'm nervous right now. I don't know if you guys can tell that. Okay, It's just one of those things, but it takes faith. There's a faith that God, hey, this is what I called you to do. <laughs> you go do it. Okay, It's a faith thing. So no matter what your gift is, guys, you need to step out into that gift in faith. And there may be a greater faith that God gives you to step out and even to do more. So whatever that is, we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But really, these verses talk about consecration, transformation, and evaluation. So present, okay, we're to present our bodies. That's a technical term here of presenting a sacrifice, literally meaning to place alongside, okay, uh, for any purpose. Present your bodies, that can be characterized as our conscience, our intelligence, consecrated our lives, our bodies, our whole devotion to the service of God. How many of you guys have heard of William Booth before? Okay, I want to share a quote by him. Um, he said, I will tell you this secret. God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, even with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and I caught the vision of Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day, I made up my mind that God should have all of William Boother was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart and all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. That's how you're a living sacrifice. Guys, when we think of a living sacrifice, we usually think of a sacrifice as being something that's dead. Put that dead sacrifice on that altar. So we're dead in the sense that we no longer live for ourselves as Christians. We've been crucified with Christ, right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we're alive now to live for God. Many will boast, <laughs> I will die for God. I will lay down my life for God. I will be a martyr for my faith. 
but it's sad because so few will actually live for God. What's the problem with being a living sacrifice, guys? I've said it before. He crawls off the altar, right? (laughs) That's the problem. He can get off and back on. I want to encourage you guys, don't be defeated if you find yourself off the altar saint. It's easy to find yourself discouraged. Satan's good at discouraging us. You see, consecration, you guys know that's a process. It will be a process to the day we die. It takes daily and even hourly commitment to live for God. So don't ask, have I presented myself? The question should be, am I presenting myself as a living sacrifice? It's a daily laying aside your own desires to follow Jesus. So holy or consecrated, set apart, you're living a reserved life for God. That's what it means here. Maybe it can be explained or described as taking a blank sheet of paper, guys, okay? And sign your name at the bottom and let God fill it in as he wills. Do you have the faith to do that? My life's yours. Here it is, Jesus. Write it down, whatever you want, whatever you ask. I'm on board. I've signed off. I am yours. I would like you guys to take these home with you. Whether you sign it or not, I can't hold your hand and sign it for you. That's between you and your God. But I would encourage you guys, hang it somewhere where you're reminded, yep, (laughs) I'm yours. I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. My life is yours. I'm a living sacrifice, Jesus. I love how Oswald Chambers put it. He called it giving up my right to myself. Pretty simple but profound. Giving up my right to myself. So listen to the seriousness of consecration. I want to look at a passage of scripture in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 3 verse 11. Listen carefully. And the Lord said to Moses, Look, I've chosen the Levites from among the Israelites to serve as substitutes for all the firstborn sons of the people of Israel. The Levites belong to me, for all the firstborn males are mine. And on the day I struck down all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, I set apart for myself all the firstborn in Israel, both of people and of animals. They are mine. I am the Lord. Well, that's great. That's for the Levites, one of the 12 tribes. That's Old Testament, and I'm not a Levite. What does it say about me as a believer? New Testament. Well, you can jot down 1 Peter 2.9. You, (laughs) New Testament believer, You're a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's your reasonable service, brothers and sisters. 
or literally your rational worship. Let's put this into perspective. Guys, it's been said that we as Americans, okay, we have three idols. We like size, noise, and speed. And we buy into it, right? But what does worship do? Worship runs the opposite of those three directions. Think about this with me, guys. When we worship the Lord, it reminds us of how little we are, how great he is, right? Okay? It also reminds us to be still, and to know that he is God. And it reminds us that we must wait upon the Lord. So let's talk about transformation. Can a person truly change? How many of you guys would say yes and amen to that? How many of you guys can say that Jesus Christ has changed, has transformed your life? He does. Radically. I'm going to have... Is my brother James here? Oh, he's hiding behind the post. My younger brother James, are you still willing to come up and share? He's 20 years old, and he's going to come and share with us about how Jesus changed his life. No wonder I couldn't find you. He's literally like the only person I can't see in the sanctuary. (laughs) So let's give it up for James. He turned 20 on Wednesday. I don't know about you guys, but he looks pretty good for 20. Oh, gosh. Grace and peace to you all. Uh, Pastor Landon asked me to give my testimony this morning, and I, I hope he doesn't regret it. Um, but I'll try to to hit the high points, and and hopefully I'll leave here uh, in agreement with the Holy Spirit inside of me that I did what Pastor Landon wanted me to do. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks and praise this morning, Lord, and just one biggie, Lord, your power over death for everyone, and. We just ask you to uh, bless everything that goes on with this testimony, Lord, and just may the words of my mouth and the meditations of everyone here's hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Amen. So I, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama during the 1950s. And uh, my mother was a school teacher, and I think she, uh, rightly so, um, diagnosed me, so to speak, as a little rebel. Um, so much so that in the 10th grade, I went to military school, and uh, that didn't do much. But I went to the University of Alabama and um, got a degree in business that should have said beer drinking and skirt chasing. But right before I got that degree, I started smoking marijuana. And um, to stay out of Vietnam, I went to graduate school and got a degree in counseling. Oh boy. And it wasn't long in those two summers 
that I was smoking a lot more marijuana and was very quickly introduced to the needle. And so within a couple of years of leaving Alabama, I was sticking needles in my arm and um, really just doing whatever drugs I could find to, to put in my body and not caring about my body at all. Um, and with that master's degree that I had, I got a job in the uh, state mental uh, system in Alabama and worked in state hospitals and adjustment centers for about seven years. And of course, I found out about uh, a lot of pharmaceutical drugs to control behavior and uh, even snitched a few. So um, it wasn't long uh, that my brother, who was already in pharmaceutical sales, said, you need to make more money. And I said, well, okay, and got into pharmaceuticals, and yes, in a year, I was making three times the money I was making for the state, and also had more access to pills. I've got a pharma ex-pharmacist out here just giving me the... But anyway, um, a lot of what was going on, and of course, I, I should say, I, I re-met a girl that I knew in high school at the mental hospital, and we got married. Of course, she was, she was doing drugs at that time, which she uh, stopped, but didn't know that I kept on going. And this, this whole process just led to a lot more and more rebellion uh, when I got into pharmaceuticals and started spending time away from home, I got into adultery and was a womanizer. And um, really, this is a, a, a lot of that whole marriage, and I can't believe it lasted 24 years, but even now the, um, the enemy just throws all of that up at me all the time, um, which I have learned through the Holy Spirit to deflect a lot more. But anyway, I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't come to the Lord or, or realize the truth until I was almost 54 years old. And that was 20 years ago this past Wednesday. But my, uh, my drug use continued and my bad behavior and the pharmaceutical company got rid of me. My wife got rid of me. And the Lord started breaking me down first to the big money and then to a lot of different things um, until uh, fall of 2001. And gosh, at that point, um, and I was still just trying to find any kind of chemical that I could put in my body to change my reality. But uh, through a lot of opiate addictions and everything like that, I wasn't sleeping very much. So one, one early morning, about 2.30 in an apartment, um, it was a very nice apartment and I had 
uh, food in the refrigerator, money in the bank, and a, a steady job. But I was completely bankrupt emotionally and, and spiritually, having grown up in the church. <clears throat> so in my desperation, I got on my knees, and I just said a very simple prayer. I said, God, if you're real, take the desire to do drugs out of me. Two seconds later, I realized that he had done so. I had my stash in the apartment for six months after that. I didn't even think about going close to it. Now, I took all of my pornography to the dumpster the next morning, but I didn't even think about the drugs. Um, and I immediately got with a very old friend that I, I can't remember life where he wasn't there. He had prayed for me all of those 31 years, and I got back with him, and, you know, I said, okay, Lord, I know that, that you're real and you've, you've uh, taken drugs out of my life, uh, but, but what do I really believe? And... It was in that book we called the Bible. That's what I believe, but I, I didn't know what it was yet. So getting back with him and, of course, a lot of these people from all along the way started emerging and saying, I know Jesus. I know Jesus. And, gosh, I was, I was still a jogger then, so I was going to the track and after meeting and running from the track, meeting back at the track, having Bible study, going to people's houses, um, going to just a, a lot of different churches and um, ending up at a Lutheran church because of various relationships. And that's the, the five weeks after the dramatic experience was when I had my first date with Beth. So you can see that she was a part of the whole metamorphosis, I guess. But um, I, I'll never forget the first time that I really got into reading the Word of God after that happened to me. It was like I'd never read it before because back in when I was in the church, um, I was teaching Sunday school. I was coordinating youth groups. Not like you guys. You guys don't do it like I did it. Um, but I mean, completely without God. So when, when I started reading the word then, it was like I'd never read it before. And you know, even now, I can read it over and over and over, and I never get tired of it because I know it's speaking to me, to that part of me that's not the Holy Spirit. And I know that the Holy Spirit is there always wanting to be more and more in my life according to how much I surrender still more and more of myself to him. So I, I, I want to just kind of exhort everyone. You know, there's, there's so much to be said about seeking the Lord. And I know that I can only attest about James Trammell's relationship with the Lord. But for me, um, the only thing that, 
that I can do anything about completely is that one-to-one relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's it. But everything springs from that. Everything. And the seeking is where it is. You know, it says in the book of Hebrews, those that seek me diligently, I will reward them. And oh, that happens. That happens. And the thing we have to remember, though, is that he gives us the desires of our hearts according to his will and his timing. So the things that we want, if they're of him, we're going to get them. There's a a lady right back there that I can tell you knows that quite well. And we've, we've seen a lot of things happen with just the people in this fellowship that are just definitely miracles. So I'll just end by saying this. For me, in seeking the Lord, and of course we are so blessed with his word to be able to hear him speaking to us through the Spirit anytime we go and read the word. But in our seeking, there is no neutral. There is no neutral with God. We're either moving forward toward him or we're moving away from him so if he can change somebody that was in open rebellion like me in every area of life I can say because because I left out a lot of the real nasty gutter stuff the spirit told me to do that so Anyway, I, I, I want to offer to, to anyone here that at any point in the future wants to ask me specific questions about things, um, that I'd, I'd be available. And um, I think that's about it, Pastor. And, and I, can, I can add this, this one thing before we started. Beth and I started coming out here. I came and talked to, to Landon. I said... I'm just looking for someone who is, will never compromise on the word of God. You remember that? I've never been disappointed. Isn't it cool when the light finally goes on? Going to church, being a Christian, you're not even born again. You know that God's in the business of making things new, new creations. That's why there's power in testimony, guys. It's legit. Earlier this week, I picked up a, you guys might know the can guy here in Kakana. You ever see him? 100 pounds of cans. Dozens of bags, walks all the way out to Golden's to get money for the aluminum. Um, talked with him a few times. He's got a lot of reasons why he won't believe in Jesus. A lot of excuses. And uh, this week I felt led just to share my testimony. I know Jesus is real because he's changed me. I might not have it all together. I'm not perfect. 
but he is. He's a perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we got to share. I got to talk a little bit of prophecy with him because he gets really tripped up on all the religions in the world. And and I got to tell him how the Bible is the only religious book that tells of a Savior who would come, that God himself would come. And he fulfilled all those prophecies and did exactly what he said. He even said that he was going to die, give up his life to be the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of this world. And he did it. Guys, there's power in testimony. You can't argue with testimony. You guys might have reasons to argue against believing in Christ. But James is a changed man. That's a very real testimony. And I'm so glad that the Lord touched him 20 years ago. He's at every men's prayer we have. He's up in the jails. I was up there ministering with him. Hey, you guys feed the poor. He came to the pantry. You've been forgiven much, you love much. When you're truly touched by Jesus and you're born again, your life's not your own any longer. Your priorities change. There's something worth living for. And it's not the career, it's not the money, it's not the drugs and the girls any longer. There's eternal realities, things of worth, things that matter. I'm so thankful that the Lord got a hold of your heart, James. Love doing life with you. So transformation is a real thing. Look at verse 2, guys. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. Well, I want to know the will of God. Great. Okay. Renew your mind. Be transformed. Avoid worldly contamination and achieve godly transformation. How many of you guys believe God can change people? Well, a bunch of us raise our hand. Yeah, we know it, right? Do you guys believe when you come on a Sunday morning, hey, we're going to get into God's word. <laughs> I believe that God's going to transform me. Sanctify them. How? By your truth. What's your truth? My word is truth. Every time you guys pick up the word of God, that's why I tell you, be in the word every day, guys. It is alive. It is powerful. It will transform you. It's not just a bunch of head knowledge. Oh, it's good to know this as a believer. No, it's alive. It does things to our souls, to our spirit. It changes us. So this world age, this age cannot and must not serve is how we're to live as Christians. And shame on us as the church because I see much of the church looking to the world for wisdom on how to do church better. How ought we to live? No. You see, our world is presently screaming conformity. Don't claim that Christ is the only way. You don't do that. And then tolerance. (laughs) Why are those who fight for tolerance so intolerant to us who believe that Jesus is the only way? And truth is not absolute, but it's subjective. Simply ask those who say there is no such thing as absolutes if they are absolutely sure. You guys can laugh a little more. I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) But we have the same-sex marriage stuff going on. All religions are the same. Don't vote your morals. I mean, the list goes on and on. Nothing can kill a church faster, guys, than when it becomes conformed to the world. You see, we are a group of individuals. 
So yes, this is speaking right here specifically to you, every one of you. So one person, well, just one person who's conformed to the world have an effect on the church. Yes. There are those that God has called to be here to be a part of our church family. They're not here. They're not walking in what God's called them to, walking in their gifts, walking in their part. And we all feel the effects of it. It's beautiful when we work together, isn't it? God does much when we do our parts. You see, we, will one diseased fish affect a whole tank? We got a fish tank. One gets sick. They all get sick. So transformed. What is, that's talking about the innermost parts, guys. True transformation. D.L. Moody used to say, the scriptures were not given for our information, but for our transformation. December 12th, we're wearing crazy, ugly Christmas sweaters. And you guys are going to bring some cookies, right? Cookie cutters, that's being conformed, okay? This is the exact form. We don't let the world conform us. Don't allow the world to mold us, guys. We're to be, I love what James said in his testimony, metamorphosis, like a butterfly, transformed. The J.B. Phillips translation puts this verse this way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remake you so that you, your whole attitude of mind is changed. Man! And that's what Jesus does. When we are truly transformed, okay, our attitudes will be transformed, radically changed. And when our attitudes are right and godly, watch out for the fortitude that we will have as the church. Dare to be different, guys. So how are we transformed then? I'm glad you guys asked. It's by the Spirit of God. If we could change, we would change ourselves. But we don't. A lot of people can give lip service to it. People don't change. But God will change, transform us, right? He will renew our minds. This is how it happens. You guys can jot down 2 Corinthians 3.18. The NIV puts it this way. And we, who with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed in the likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he is changing us from glory to glory. Some of you guys have been doing life with me for a while, and I've seen that growth. It's beautiful. You're growing in Jesus, you know, and that's what God does. He sanctifies. He changes us. Okay, we are growing. We're being renewed. So be released from the control of this world that's around you and come to know that God is right in what he has in mind, okay, what he has for you. That is right. So it is living a life that is committed to excellence, and it's living above the level of mediocrity. It's living really unshackled life. It's living unchained, guys. That's what Romans 12 is telling us here. 
because of who Jesus is and what he has done and what his spirit will do in his children, guys, we don't have to live chained. It was for freedom's sake he came. We are free to be. We don't have to be conformed to this world. We can think for ourselves. We can know the truth. We can do what we've been created to do. And this is acceptable. I want you guys to catch this. Acceptable. Sacrifices are offered to God. Those aren't enough in and of themselves. They have to be acceptable offerings to him. Now that we've avoided worldly contamination, achieved godly transformation, now we're to assess proper evaluation. And that's verse 3. Look again. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So most of us lack an honest assessment of ourselves. Okay? We all have blind spots. Truly. Okay? And I, as your brother in Christ, I invite you to speak into my life because there are things I know I don't see clearly. Okay? You see, we constantly need to keep our pride in check. I don't care who you are, we are a prideful people. We need to keep it in check. And it is running rampant today within the church. There's a danger of becoming egoholics, we'll call them. Don't think more highly of yourself or less highly. We need to have a proper estimate of who we are to see rightly. It's interesting, guys. Accepting ourselves precedes giving ourselves. Did you guys catch that? So we have to know and accept our abilities and also our limitations. Okay? What you believe must determine how you behave. So there's unity. Spoke last time how unity comes with humility. (laughs) And here we see a unity that is in diversity, and that is beautiful. Let's look here, because really how we live, guys, do you guys want your life to echo into eternity? I do. Look at verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. So what if, what would happen to us guys if one or more parts, you know, of our body just stopped working, not functioning? It would be hard to get life done to do what we need to do you know what if my feet suddenly said hey (laughs) i want to try driving (laughs) you guys would check me out driving down the road what's going on with him that's a little goofy get off the road we're in trouble you know and who would want to trade a body part for say an armpit right (laughs) anyways 
I know you could run with it all day. What if your belly buddy wanted to start doing the breathing? You know, it's like, oh, crazy mask on. I can't breathe. Um, anyways, <laughs> the point here Paul's making in verse four is we're all part of the body, guys. We're all part of the body of Christ with a ministry to fulfill. So we need to do our part lovingly and with joy. So it's about unity in diversity. The Christian faith is essentially a corporate experience. A lot of people, hey, it's all about my personal relationship with Jesus. Hey, read your body or the Bible. We are a body. We are the body of Christ. Whether you like it or not, solo Christian, you know, we're not to roll. That's why we're called not to forsake the assembling together. Okay, God wants us together as the body, working together for his glory. It is a corporate experience, okay? Um, I love rivers. I think it's so cool that our church is right next to a river, and I've shared about that before. Um, but do you guys know rivers gain more attention than those little streams that run into the rivers ever do? Okay? But we can go through a whole list of some of the greatest rivers in the world, but we can never remember the names of the tributaries to those rivers. However, without the tributaries, there would be no river. And it must be remembered, guys, too, that the smaller streams, while less well-known, are pure and are found on higher elevation. So there's many gifts, many facets when it comes to the body of Christ. Look at verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in portion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So spiritual gifts, guys, are the abilities of the Holy Spirit and how he, God, bestows them upon all believers to equip them for service. So these gifts really are important when it comes to the ministry of grace, the gospel of grace. Guys, we're saved by grace, right? Okay, We grow by grace. We're endowed by grace. Salvation Okay, growth, and then there's service that God calls us to, and it's all by God's grace. So it really is an experience of God's grace from the get-go to the end, guys. It is all his grace. So remember, accepting ourselves, verse 3, precedes giving ourselves. So it's that painful self-discovery where we accept both our ability and our limitations, okay? Then, and only then, can God use our service. I'm constantly, over the years, asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want? That's it. No more, no less. But I have a hard time saying no. You guys like me? It's hard to say no. I know what I'm called to. I know what the Bible says to that. (laughs) And it's hard just to stick to that. Because there is all this other stuff that's always needed. And you guys understand, when we're working together as the body, when we're doing our parts, we are freed up 
to move in our giftings, supernatural giftings, and watch out. And that's where we as a church family want to encourage one another. Step up, use your gifts, let's work together. If you're called to that, I don't want you doing this over here. I want you to be freed up to be doing that. Because that what is God is found fit to be a blessing to this church, to our community, and for his glory. So I want to encourage you guys, use your gifts. You see, guys, um, Paul, he goes on. These, this, he lists seven gifts here, okay? But it seems less interested in giving us an extensive list of gifts. But he, instead, he urges us to exercise the ones we have. Very simple. Use what you got. That's what he's telling us. We're in a battle. <laughs> do what you do best. Prophecy. Well, that's communication of revealed truth that builds up believers. Some of you guys may have that gift. Use it. Ministry. Okay? What's that? Well, that's practically serving others. Okay? We're called to minister. You may have that gift. Serve. Do it. Teaching. That provides guidance, moral instruction, Exhorting, that's encouraging, that can bring comfort to others, that will exhort others. Some of you guys are just really good at it. Some of you that have this gift, you walk up to me, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to talk to you right now, you know? Because normally what you say is just right to the point, like, hey, it's exactly what I hear or what I didn't want to hear, <laughs> like, you know? Um, giving liberally, okay? Cheerfully. Some of you guys have the gift of generosity, okay? Contributing to the needs of others. You're very open-handed, you may not even have. I see some of the biggest givers and the ones that God uses the most in the body really aren't people who are rich, okay? They're just willing and open-hearted. Hey, what do you need? You know, here I am. Mercy is the other one he brings up, okay? That's to be helpful, okay? Doing activities like maybe feeding the hungry or caring for those who are sick or aging. Um, those who lead were called to do it with diligence so that service carried out to the benefit of others, some of you guys have the gift of leadership. Step up, lead, um, be diligent with that. If these gifts are functioning properly in the church, there will be genuine spiritual, okay? Um, there's going to be controlled by the Spirit of God to minister to God's people. It will be spontaneous. You'll be serving from the heart, okay? It won't be some legalistic thing that this is what I have to do. Okay, I'm just led by the Spirit of God. There's this need. There's this ministry. This needs to happen. Let's just do it. And it also will be sacrificial. Generously sharing time, money, energy, and talents. So, love has many faces. Let's take a look at verse 10 here. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. These are things we're called to as believers. So nowhere in Paul's writings, guys, do we find a more concise collection of ethical injunctions. Okay, Some have love, but have a hard time expressing that love. But then you have to ask, is it real love? Okay? Say the father who loves his son but never tells his son, hey, son, I love you. 
Or maybe it's the daughter who had a loved her controlling mother, but was too afraid to share the gospel with her, even as she laid there on her deathbed. The consequences of unexpressed love, guys. Paul makes it very clear for the Christian, love always leads to action, deliberate, purposeful, expression, really that will glorify God and also minister to his people. So what does God's way of love look like? I'm glad you guys asked. Love is not some mushy, gushy, you know, embraces all, forgives all, forgets all, requires nothing. That's not biblical love, guys. In fact, you will notice that once uh, that in our text here, Paul does, or he does not even define love, but he passes immediately to how love functions. So how does love function? Well, at its heart, guys, it's first genuine without hypocrisy. Did you guys catch that? A very genuine love. And it's also discriminating. Okay? Love, let love be without hypocrisy. So that's sincere. It's devoid of any deception. It's not fake It's or selfish. It doesn't put on an act. It doesn't wear a mask that hides its feelings or motives. It doesn't smile and just say, hey, good but it's pure it's honest it's genuine it's kind so love must be genuine okay not just the role playing we're also told here to abhor what is evil cling to what is good so love discriminates do you guys see this between evil and good So we can't only cling to what is good, but we must abhor evil. We are constantly told that every ideology that's out there, every viewpoint is valid. It must be affirmed no matter how outlandish or illogical or immoral it might be. They say that we are supposed to personally determine for ourselves what is true. However, God has made it very clear that his word, okay, his word states standards. And those standards are objective. They are true. They are absolute. And they apply to everyone. There is no valid standard other than his own. Sin is not something to be winked at or shrugged off or tolerated away. Evil should be hated and good should be clung to. So we should hate all oppressive injustice that defies life and causes people to be vulnerable, like exploitation or violence or discrimination, voicelessness, human trafficking, corruption. I mean, the list can go on and on, can't it? We should love justice that values life, like dignity of all people, protection of the vulnerable, enabling the exploited, bringing salvation to those who have not heard, helping with a safe and a civil society, helping with sustainable economic opportunities. So when we read this scripture and it says, abhor, hate bitterly what is evil. Cling, glue, cement yourself to those things that are good. And then verse 10 talks about devotion here. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. We are exhorted to do this. 
you come to church and say, hey, I can't wait to genuinely love my brothers and sisters. Or when you meet with another believer for some coffee or you give to give them a hand that, hey, I genuinely love you. I want to express that love to you. You see the Greek verb here, kindly affectionist, phleostragos, means family affection or tenderly loving. This is the way we should be with our brothers and our sisters. My wife is away this weekend at a teacher conference, Daniel Weekend they call it, but they're equipping Christian teachers with the gospel, how to share the love of Christ with their students and staff and how that might look in a public school arena. She didn't know anybody that else that was going. And the feedback is she's just thoroughly enjoyed her time with her brothers and sisters and what God is doing with that group of believers. The feedback, they do these all over the nation. And they, they had a couple key leaders in And she was telling me uh, last night that they feel like they've, this is the smallest group that they've ever had for one of these. But it's been the most fruitful they've ever had. And it's because there's just a love and a functioning of the gifts together with a small group of believers. What can take place when you're really loving each other, being vulnerable? One of the leaders wanted me to drive all the way out there to meet them for dinner just to hear what's going on in a Churchill's lives, you know? That's love. I didn't go, by the way. But <laughs> if I was a little more loving, maybe I would have went. But... <laughs> When we have brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to have that type of love, you know? Just meeting a, a brother in the Lord at the gas station up the street at Quick Trip. Instant fellowship. Love you, bro. Great conversation. I just met you. Hey, I'm going to give you a hug before we leave. What two guys hug each other that just total strangers? Brothers. Brothers in Christ. Okay? So that's what we're called to do. And it's a love, guys, that leaves room for weakness and imperfections, you know? That's why I thank you guys for loving me, okay? We all come short in some way, but family love, we just love each other. And it's a reminder for family members to be committed to and supportive of each other. We are there for one another. And he also says in verse 10 to be unselfish, unselfishness, right? In honor, giving preference to one another. Honor means value. It's respect for them. Give the respect and the affirmation to others rather than seeking it for ourselves. Our Christian love really should honor all people, Christians and non-Christians alike. Because, guys, we're all made in the image of God. If you aren't able to love all, you don't understand God's word. You don't understand his creation. You don't understand the purpose of humanity. You see, our Christian love should honor all. And then there's enthusiasm in verse 11, not lagging in diligence, but being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So not lagging in diligence, okay? So don't lack zeal. Put your whole heart into it. Put your soul into what you're doing. We've all drifted into lazy complacement and indifference routines in our walk with the Lord, but Paul really wants to shake us up. Do you guys feel that as we're studying through this chapter? <laughs> we need to wake up. This is what you're called to do as a believer. Okay, This is how we engage. So fervent in spirit. 
Be aglow with the Spirit. Life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit radically alters a person's life. Fervent zeal, which means to boil or to be hot. So Paul's saying to be passionate and bubble over with God's love. And we do that, serving the Lord. So don't forget who you serve, because it's about Him. We serve Him. Verse 12 talks about hope, rejoicing in hope. Do you guys know that our hope is confident trust? It is a sure thing. It's not an uncertain expectation. So let your love really bloom into hope. Love points our gaze really into the future. Verse 12 talks about consistency. That's being patient, persevering in tribulation. This world will go through, um, or it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, it's coming against us. It has, it always will. That's the world, okay? Um, does not like us as believers. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate us too. We're going to have our difficulties in this life, but the believer is steadfast in time of trouble, okay? We're going to stand our ground. This is who I am in Christ Jesus. He is my rock, and I'm going to stand fast. So simply, it is patience in hard times, and then he talks about pray, uh, prayerfulness in verse 12. So continually, steadfastly in prayer. When I make announcements and say, hey, you know, sisters, we have prayer on Saturday morning at 8 a.m. You know, men, first Saturday of the month, a.m. Hey, we pray at 9 o'clock every Sunday together. It's because it's something that we're to be given to. Because continuing steadfastly in prayer, okay, that does much for the believer. You see, if Satan can keep us out of touch with God, he knows that, we won't cause any problems for his evil kingdom. He doesn't want us praying. We need to be praying. Continuing steadfastly, we're told here. So attend to it consistently, constantly. So prayer really is our lifeline with God, okay? My question would be for you and I, how thick is that lifeline? Is it a little thread? <laughs> Maybe it's a rope. I hope it's a big old metal cable. <laughs> um, so how else, guys, are we going to remain connected to his love? Well, verse 13 says generosity, distributing to the needs of the saints. So share with believers. You see a brother in need? Share. Help out. Love is generous, guys. So it is, it is critical for believers who have or have plenty to really share with the abundance with those who don't. Okay, The world's love it's grasping, isn't it? Would you guys agree with me? It's always fleeting. It's a love um, where we want it for ourselves. You know, we want their time, their affection. We want them to meet our needs. But real love, guys, God's love moves us to provide for the needs of others. Those needs aren't always financial. Okay, Money does not help someone who's grieving or who is lonely, or who is sick. Sometimes it's putting an arm around somebody's shoulder, or giving them our company, or our laughter, or our gentleness. And then hospitality, okay, given to pursuing or in hunt of being hospitable, okay? Hospitality means the love of strangers, people who are foreign or different from us. The kind of love Paul describes helps us to fight against our prejudices and our contemptible desire to exclude those who have different skin than us. 
nationality or religion, gender, age, sex, whatever. Okay. Um, so what hinders us from loving others? Fear. Do you guys agree with me? Fear, passivity, preoccupation, fear, opening our hearts. That's going to make our, us vulnerable, isn't it? We don't like being vulnerable. We might get hurt. We might get rejected. Past experiences of being burned. Why would I want to do that again? So instead of taking a risk, we just back off to protect ourselves. Passivity. A lot of us wait to let another person make the first move. Instead of finding out what someone's needs are, we want someone to tell us what to do. So this passivity really effectively squelches that spontaneity and the sensitivity to the spirit, to loving others. And then preoccupation. It's so easy to get you know, wrapped up into our own lives, our pleasures, and even our pains. Okay? Um, some of us get so busy with our lives okay, that spending time with others, okay, we just don't have it anymore. <laughs> and to take time to notice actually how someone else might be feeling, their pursuit of their own interests really drains any interest and dims care, really crowding out any love that we're called to. So it's being caught up in the lie that cries out tomorrow, right? Tomorrow I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that for your kingdom, Jesus. Tomorrow... I'll be generous when I get my raise. Tomorrow I'll be hospitable when I have a larger house. Tomorrow I'll love more, you know, when i positive that I'm going to get loved back. Tomorrow I'll, I'll pay or pray if I have time. Tomorrow I'll help the poor if my bills are paid. Tis better to have loved and lost, then never have to love at all. Amen. Amen. Who is that? Is that William Luthrow? What's his name? James what? Who said that? Who knows? All right. I can't think of his name at the moment. Anyways, moving on, guys. <laughs> Two things I want us to catch here. Okay, Paul speaking personal and not national or nationally. Okay, so how an individual Christian should act in, you know, not a nation, say, against a Hitler, okay? Paul here speaking, okay? We're changing gears a little bit. How do we love each other now? How do we, you know, love others, unbelievers, even enemies? Paul speaking here. Um, this isn't uh, attainable. I want us to get that before we read here. Um, it's not, I, you know, idealistic. Um, these are not just words for us to try to aspire to, okay? But it's something that we can really live by the Spirit of God. Do you guys believe that? Okay? Paul's not going to waste time writing, you know, these things down if we can't actually do them. So Paul, you know, he told young Timothy, be diligent, okay, um, to show yourselves approved to God. And this is something that we should be diligent in doing, also, to be honest, guys, we all have enemies as we get into these verses. We all have enemies. Um, so when Paul says our struggles are not really against, you know, flesh and blood, he didn't mean that we wouldn't have enemies here on earth. 
He was trying to help us keep a proper perspective. And whenever enemies confront us, we need to realize there are spiritual forces at work. Okay? Now, there are rules of engagement for us as Christians. Okay? I see a lot of Christians engaging evil, <laughs> the enemy in this world, but they're not doing it by God's rules. And it's a horrible witness to Jesus Christ. Let's do what God asks us to do and how he asks us to do it. The first rule of engagement, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So now, you know, I would have, you know, loved a little warm-up here from Paul, maybe saying, hey, pray, you know, once in a while, put a smile on your face, but he just jumps in and says, hey, bless, don't curse. This is what you do with your enemies, right? Uh, don't hope the worst upon them. So this is the same attitude expressed by Jesus when we read the Sermon on the Mount, right? That was his heart. That's what he was telling us to do. So his sermon on the Mount really spoke about blessing those who persecute us, who curse us. So instead of hoping the worst to happen to our enemies, we're to willfully hope the best for them and that it will come upon them. So instead of you know speaking words of hatred, we're really to speak words okay, that are truthful good towards them and intending, you know, good for them, even if they want to hurt us. So it's learning to pray for those who are trying to prey on us. So the context here, guys, is persecuted for Christ's namesake. So this is really has nothing to do with self-defense uh, or being bullied for the sake of being bullied, Okay. The second rule of engagement in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I love Hebrews 13, 3. What does it tell us to do? Remember those who are in prison, who are chained, as if with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Okay? So there is a time where, remember, I wear one bracelet. You guys see this? I've had it on for years. Okay? Imprisoned with them. Okay? It's remember to be praying for those who are being persecuted for the faith, to, to remember okay, that there is evil out there <laughs> coming against, and we need to engage. Um, and we have brothers and sisters that are going through it. There are good times and there are bad times. I think of Jesus going to the wedding of Cana. Celebration, right? Hey, we're going to rejoice. This is a good thing. Let's party. Okay? Um, but then we also have him at the, I guess it Lazarus tonight, chapter 12. Yeah. Lazarus, he wept there, okay? Lazarus had died. Weep with those who weep. So we can measure our likeness to Christ by the range of sensitiveness to sorrow and pain of others. So engage in people's lives, guys. We need to connect with them, not only in the good, happy times, but also in the hard stuff, the sad times. Don't be bugged when God, at God when grief comes your way. Because how are you going to weep with those who weep unless you're actually acquainted with grief? Amen? I want to share with you Psalm 84, verses 5 and 6. It talks about the valley of weeping. It says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, speaking of God, whose heart is set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca, which means weeping. They make it a spring... And the rain also covers its pools. So as they went through, guys, they left behind a blessing for someone else. I think that is so cool. So the pilgrims really anticipation um, 
they have this temple experience which transforms them, okay? And then when they leave the desert place, okay, they're going to bring to that place springs, blessings. So do you believe, do you leave behind blessings for someone else? That's how we ought to live as Christians, okay? Our lives really should be a blessing for others. Third rule of engagement, look at verse 16 here. It says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. So associate with the humble, literally to be carried along with as by a flood which sweeps everything along with it and then to give oneself to it. So when you come really to the river of humility, guys, strap on your life vest, jump in, and get swept away by it. There's nothing better for the Christian than to live a life of humility. Too often we're content with just dipping our toes into the pool of humility. I would encourage you guys to jump in. Fourth rule of engagement, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. So this really reflects here Paul's concern for the impressions Christians make upon non-believers. 1 Thessalonians 4.12 says, walk properly towards those who are outside. Okay, So to repay evil for evil makes us participants in evil. And it's evil that always escalates with each exchange. Sometimes we get that mentality, payback time. It's bankrupt from spiritual, from any spiritual economics that Paul would have us never pay into in the first place. Just don't do it as Christians. And we are. We need to repent. We need to humble ourselves. The second part of verse 17 can literally be read this way. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. So respect. Think beforehand. Take thought for have regard for okay what is right here okay it's right beautiful good noble honorable so discover beauty in everyone that's what god's asking us to do again we can do that because we've all been made in the image of god or we could say always be on the outlook for what is good in people i love the day when god enlightened me and said landon stop trying to find something wrong with everybody just stop it. He encouraged me to look for what can be redeemed. What's redeemable in that person? Man, I used to come down on other ministries, other religions. But I've really purposely tried to focus on how can I find common ground with those that I disagree what can I do <laughs> that we can build a bridge, that there can be conversation, that I can share the hope of Jesus Christ with them instead of just building walls? And I recognize that fact, guys, will often <laughs> allow people to misunderstand me or accuse me of compromise or maybe being liberal. But I love being on the lookout for the good in people. I love how God can use that. Sure, we do disagree with a lot of things when it comes to the world as Christians. But making that the issue 
How is that winning people to Jesus Christ? I swear I'm never going back, guys. It's not fruitful. It's a poor witness. It's not Romans 12. The fifth rule of engagement. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As it depends on you, you do. Paul's a realist here. He wants us to be real. We can't always make everything okay. We can't always control other people. Some don't want to be at peace with us. So he advises us to fulfill our responsibility. Live peaceably. Christian, live peaceably. Don't be a Christian crusader who's always looking for a fight to pick or hunting down Christ's enemies. We are to love and to win people. That is what we're called to. Not to root them out and to beat them senseless. You see, Jesus pronounced blessing upon peacemakers. Did you guys catch that on the Sermon on the Mount? There's a blessing when you're a peacemaker, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I'm a son of God. I'm going to be about peace. Because my God, he's the Prince of Peace. The author of Hebrews writes, pursue peace with all people. All. Not just those who agree with you. Not just other Christians. All people. That's in chapter 12, verse 14. Be kind of peace. This kind of peace, guys, it's to be pursued. This is what we should be working towards. If this is rubbing you, you're going in the wrong direction. This is what we should be moving towards as believers It's a required effort. It's not something that just happens. It's really a product of mental and spiritual toil. Okay, We need to engage in this. You see, conflict in our church brings glory to Satan, and it really disgraces God. And how many churches? Hey, here's another divide. Here's another church split. We're leaving because of this. Satan's good at what he does. But if we're doing what God tells us to do, that's not going to be happening, guys. So how many disgraceful public displays of church disagreements could be prevented with this one admonition if we just heeded God's word? If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sixth rule of engagement, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay them, says the Lord. You have an NIV translation that says, leave room for the wrath of God. Let God repay them for the evil that they've done to you. That's God's job. Paul is advocating non-retaliation in light of future retribution of God. So it's his promise to do so. You can jot down Deuteronomy 32, 35. I will take revenge. I will pay back. And he goes on. We see in the New Testament, Hebrews 10, 31, he adds, the Lord will judge his people, and it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And it's the example of David's refusal to kill Saul on two occasions when it seemed that God had delivered Saul into his hands. So we really learn two things here, guys. Evil is wrong, and evil rightly deserves punishment. That is what we draw from this. Retribution will indeed be meted out to the guilty party, There are times when doing nothing demands much greater strength than taking action. It's good to shut our mouths once in a while. That takes maturity. That takes strength. That takes following the spirit of the living God. 
maintaining compromise is often the best evidence of, or sorry, maintaining composure is often the best evidence of power. Even the vilest and the deadliest of charges, you guys know that Jesus responded with a deep, unbroken silence. He said nothing as he hung on that cross. As his accusers and spectators looked in wonder, wow, he says nothing. Those who are unjustly accused and mistreated without cause know the tremendous strength that is necessary to keep silent and to leave revenge to God. Do you guys believe the word of God? Are you hearing what he's saying? Look at the next rule of engagement. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, your enemy, what do you do? Feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap up coals of fire on his head. So this doesn't teach, you know, teach us some passive non-resistance. Instead, it's active benevolence. Overcoming evil with good, with a direct and obvious acts of kindness. So if someone does you wrong, guys, it says not only forgive them, but you also avenge it. Do you guys catch that? Okay. And how do you do that? By doing him or her a favor, Christian. That's what we do. So coals of fire on the head. A lot of people, what's up with this? What is he talking about? Well, a little light on this passage may come from the Egyptian expedition, a ritual which they had when a person was guilty of wrongdoing. They would carry a pan of burning coals on their head as a sign of his repentance. Thus treating one's enemy kindly may cause him to repent. Or sometimes a person's fire went out when they needed to borrow some coals to restart their fire. So giving person coals in a pan to carry home on their head was a neighborly thing to do. So compassion, not revenge, should be characterized by believers. Okay, We should be marked by this. And if we're not, then guess what? We're engaging according to the world's ways the ways of Satan and not the ways of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul said earlier in chapter 2, verse 4, the kindness of God leads one to repentance. We want to see people turn from their evil ways? Love. Eighth rule of engagement. Do not be overcome or overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So New Testament, okay, makes it very clear here. So don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So don't overcome verbal slam for verbal slam, punch for punch, but letting grace and goodness have the last word. Only two choices, guys. You will overcome, you will be overcome by evil, or you must yourself overcome it. You can't let evil alone, and evil will not let you alone. You must fight. And you must conquer or be conquered. To respond to evil is not to overcome it, but to add to it. So our most powerful weapon against evil is what? Good. Okay? Return evil for good, that's devil-like. To return evil for evil, that's beast-like. So when we're slandering others, poking fun at them, okay, that's evil. That's the world. Return good for good, that's man-like. But to return good for evil, that's God-like. And that, brothers and sisters, Freedom Fellowship, that's the point I would like us to rise up to. 
let's do the word of God. Let's be biblical. Let's be Christ-like. Now, there's no guarantee that our kindness will change their feelings and actions towards us, and they may continue to try to hurt us. But though enemies are in fact a part of life, praise God, (laughs) he gave us rules of engagement. Okay? Romans chapter 12 here, this is not optional for us as believers. I want us to engage well, and I want us to engage in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ. So Father, we pray. God, we know that you are our refuge and our strength, and we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for how you are abundantly available for us in times of need, in times of help. God, and we want to do the same for others. Lord, as we follow from you and receive from you, God, we are going to be able to love and to give, Lord, to do good, even to those who hate us. Lord, we pray that you would teach us We know this stuff isn't natural. That's why we need your Holy Spirit. God, we know that your ways are right and they're good and they're much wiser and higher than ours. So please, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in each and every one of our hearts? Give us wisdom. We know the days are evil. We want to walk circumspectly in ways, God, that would uh, just allow wisdom, Lord, light, to be brought. This world is so lost, so confused. And we have hope. We have the hope that is real in you, Jesus. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it does change us and transform us. I would pray for each one of us, Lord, that you put a hunger in each and every one of us. Lord, even myself, just more, for more of your word, more of you. Would you please do that, Father? I ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.